0: This is an AMI podcast. On Sunday, February 6th, 2022, Wanda Eloise Davis Robson, beloved wife, mother, grandmother, author, and activist, died at the age of 95 years old. To many, Wanda was best known as the youngest sister of late civil rights activist Viola Desmond. Wanda's dedication to honoring her sister's legacy resulted in the first posthumous pardon to be granted in Canada, when in 2010, the Nova Scotia legislature also apologized for prosecuting Viola and acknowledged she was right to resist racial discrimination. In late 2018, Viola Desmond became the first Canadian woman to appear alone on a Canadian banknote, when she replaced Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, on the $10 bill. Wanda herself led a remarkable life, earning a Bachelor of Arts degree from Cape Breton University at age 77. And in 2021, Wanda was named to the Order of Nova Scotia as a pillar of the African Nova Scotian community. Back in 2013, Wanda was gracious enough to be interviewed for the AMI-audio program, Contact. In the interview, Wanda shares stories of growing up in North End, Halifax, her family's lifelong passion for education, and many stories of her sister Viola's life, including the historic act of civil disobedience that fateful autumn day over 75 years ago. In memory of Wanda Robson, and in the spirit of Black History Month, we wanted to share this interview with you now. Here is Wanda Robson in her own words.
1: I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I was the last of 15 children. Mostly my life was in the north end of Halifax, mostly the black community. We always had to think of education. I don't mean we didn't have fun. Of course we did, as little children. But growing up, the focus, the point was to educate ourselves. If we asked our father something, or the meaning of something, if we were reading, he would point to our dictionaries. I know what the answer is, but you have to look it up so you can remember it. My mother was a very loving mother, very loving, born in the United States, in in New Haven. She always stressed that you can't go anywhere or you're not going to be anybody unless you're educated. By education, she meant whatever your field, whatever you liked, you educate yourself fully in that field. She didn't say, well, you're black and you must strive, she said, you're a human being, you have to strive, and it's not going to be easy, but we're here for you, your father and I, and that's the basis of our household. Her mother died when she was three or four, and her father was a minister at the Kamala Street Baptist Church. He was sent here from New Haven, Connecticut, to preach at the Kamala Street Baptist Church. He made two visits to Halifax. The second time he was at the church, he brought his wife, who died in the 1890s. That was my mother's mother. So they went back to the States, and my mom was brought up in a school, boarding school, for young women in Boston. And my father was born And brought up in Nova Scotia, came from a large family. Dad's father had a barber shop. His sons, as they grew up, became barbers. Now my grandfather left the shop to the his sons and studied to get in the postal office for the uh, civil service exams, and passed them and became a postal carrier. My father left the shop. Because at that time, he was a young married man, and the children were coming fast, and he needed more money. He worked on the waterfront for a while, and then my mother's father died. Her brother had already died, and she was the sole heir of of houses that her father bought. while he was a minister. I would say four or five, and my father owned one or two also. They were left to him. He managed the what you would call the estates. He, he took care of the property and collected rents. And then what happened, the end of the 20s and the 30s came depression. People could not pay rent, and each one of those houses were lost. So their last house was on Swain Street in Halifax, where I was born, which was the northwest of Halifax. And there were no black people there at all. But eventually, they lost that. And they moved on Gaudington Street in the heart of the Black District. And they rented a house there. My sister Viola was, I knew her when I was growing up, but when I was small, they tell me when she was in school, she was an excellent top student, always. My oldest sister, who's still living, she's 99, she tells me that Viola's favorite place in the house was in the rocking chair by the kitchen stove with a book and a doll. The boys had their chores. The girls had their chores. Viola seemed to be given the, um, the lesser of the chores because, as my sister tells me, I think she was faking, she said, because she was so small, so tiny, that they gave her the least arduous of tasks. So Viola didn't do too much. She set the table. things. But as I said, she grew up studying, doing well in school, and she got to high school, And when she graduated, she wanted to teach. But the teacher's college did not admit black students. This would be in the early 30s. The education department had a program that if you were black and you wanted to teach, they would give you a, little, a special exam, and then they would give you a certificate if you pass that exam, a certificate to teach. Viola passed the exam and began to teach on the old of Halifax in the Black District, Hammond's Plains. And during the second year of teaching, she read an article, an, an American article, about a woman. The woman's name was Madam C.J. Walker. It was a changing point in her life because this woman was an entrepreneur. This woman was black. This woman was a millionaire. This woman was the first millionaire female, and she owned her own beauty business, a franchise. They were all across the United States, and she herself lived in a, it's almost like a grand palace with pillars and everything, in New York State. And it showed all the people that she had working for her. She went out and taught people and had had schools and classes. And this is how she became a millionaire through beauty products for black women. Now, Viola read that, and that was her goal. She was going to be not just a hairdresser a beauty consultant. She wanted to have it across Nova Scotia, her own shop. So she started by studying My mother said, you didn't do anything properly without being ready for it. So she she had to leave the province and go to Montreal. She, She got her first diploma there, and she also won a silver cup for her hair salon. At that time, she came back, she married, opened her small home business. And we lived there at the time. It was over a confectionery store. There were two flats, and we were in one and violating her husband and her business for the first one. Well, that was the beginning of everything because she started small and eventually she had all the black female customers. She was the only one that could give this sort of service. You know, there wasn't anything in the stores or you weren't admitted. I myself was refused to have have my hair done. I made an appointment over the phone and went there and they saw I was black and I said no. So she said, this has got to stop. But she had a wonderful place. She moved around the corner on the same street, and she had her name on the window, and she was busy, busy, busy. So everything that came up, she would think to herself, ah, I can do that. That would be interesting to my customers. Things like one customer said to her, I went to the store, there's no powder, there's no lipstick for black skins or black colors. So she thought, okay, as her mother's pupil, she went to the States, took course in cosmetology, came back and started selling black beauty products. Some of them she mixed herself and had her own product name called sepia. When one customer came and said that her hair was all broken off. She'd love to know where she could get a wig. Ah, another light bulb goes off. She goes back, takes a course in wig-making, comes back and starts making wigs. She would put a head in her window with a wig on it, and it would be gone in a few days. So that's how she built her, her empire. Then she said to herself, well, this is great. She started a school. She had all the business that she could handle. And she said there were black people in every area in Nova Scotia. There's Sydney and Shelburne and Glasgow and Truro and everywhere. So she started her school. And her first school, she graduated them in 1947 or 46, I believe. There were five or six of them. Some of them were from Halifax. And as I said, Viola had a a great deal of business, and business could have been divided up. So she started her second class. During the second class, she was making products making wigs, weighing, weighing very carefully her powder. People were calling her. People were writing her. Mrs. Desmond, could you send me this? Could you send me that? She did. She sent my post office. Then she thought she had a great many orders in, from Sydney, Nova Scotia, and she decided, I know. I'll take this trip on the road. And she had a girl with her who was her assistant who she taught in, in her first class who was a very able assistant. And my mother helped out in the beauty parlor, so she left them in charge, and she went by car. She had her own 1940 Dodge, which she had been taught to drive. Now, you must remember, this is in the early 40s, and women didn't drive that much. Women didn't have the cars, and if they had the car, they couldn't drive, and families didn't have a lot of cars. Women didn't own their own business. This woman was unique, my sister. She had been taught how to drive. She got in this car, packed full of all her orders ready and things to show, things for sale. My father helped her pack her car. I'm sure they were quite worried. The weather wasn't all that great. And she's a woman driving by herself a great distance from Halifax to Sydney. This tiny little woman got in the car, and had her little fur coat on and her little boots on, and off she went. She got into New Glasgow. She heard a funny noise in the car. She stopped the car in the garage, and he examined it. And he said, well, look, you know, I need a part, and I can order it. It won't be until tomorrow. You won't be able to pick it up until tomorrow. As she got out of the car, she went down the main street in the Glasgow and looked at the marquee in the theater there, which said that Olivia D. Hadlin and Lou Ayers were playing in um, The Dark Mirror. She said, you know, I haven't been in a movie for ages. She never allowed herself the comfort of relaxing too much. She did work. She worked six days a week, sometimes seven. And it was a cold, blustery day. I'll go in there and relax and watch a movie. She went in, and she said to the cashier, I'll have one down, please. The cashier looked at her and gave her a ticket. She went down the aisle on the lower level and sat down. The usher came to her in a moment and tapped on the shoulder and said, you can't sit here. And she said, "Well, why not?" And she said, "You have the wrong ticket." So my sister said, "Okay, just change it for a downstairs ticket." So she went back to the cashier and said, "I'd like this this ticket changed for the downstairs ticket." The cashier looked at her, and she said, "We can't sell downstairs tickets to you people." Well, oh, she got it finally. Well, she said, "You know, I have to sit downstairs. I live in Halifax. I sit downstairs in Halifax." And my eyesight's poor. I'm short. I like to get up close to the screen. And so here it is. So she said, You can't buy a ticket for downstairs. Violet said, I'm sorry, but I have to sit there. And she left the money, went back to the seat. And the usher told her again, If you don't move, I'll have to call a manager. Violet said, Well, you don't have to call a manager. I'm not causing any trouble. And I offered the woman, the girl, the extra money. She refused it. The manager came in and he said, he if you don't move, I'll we'll get a policeman. She said, get a policeman. He got a policeman, and he asked her for the last time, are you going to move? And she said, no. One took her by one arm, and one took her by the other, and they dragged her out of the theater, losing her purse and her shoe, and a woman in the, in the theater, she put the purse in Viola's arm or something, and they still dragged her out. When she got outside, the policeman called the taxi, and the manager of the theater went to get an uh, order for her arrest. She was taken to the police station and put in a cell. I was later on. I asked her, well, what was it like in a cell? You know, a cell. She said, well, it wasn't a home away from home. There was some sort of a cotter thing in in the corner and she said, look looked like a sink over there. I didn't examine it, she said, because I just wanted to blank my mind out of where I was. I said, did you lay down? Oh, she said, I sat up with my back to the wall, dumped my purse out, and sorted all of my things in my purse, and put out the stuff that was junk, and got my uh, appointment book and my order book. I kept my mind focused on work and not where I was. They were the Friday night's usuals. who were drunken, causing disturbance. As soon as they knew there was a woman in the in one of the cells, the remarks were made and about uh, her and to her. And she said, "Listen, I blanked my mind out of obscenities and profanity. I have nothing to do with that. I was busy getting myself ready for my customers for next week." She was taken out of the cell early in the morning. She after spending twelve hours. And she was taken to the courtroom in New Glasgow. The judge was there, Mr. McNeil, the manager, was there, and the two ladies, the Asherette and the cashier. And then the judge turned to Viola and just sort of said, well, w- was this what happened? Well, she said, yes, but, yes, but. Viola didn't know, and I wouldn't have known either, that she could have had counsel, that she could have stayed the proceedings that have it done in Halifax, but she, she wanted to go home. The judge found her guilty of uh, defrauding the provincial government of the difference between the amusement tax of the upstairs and the downstairs, which was the grand total of one cent. It wasn't that. It was the fact that this manager had his own rules. And the rules were that blacks went up to the balcony. So she, she was fined $20 and $6 costs or 30 days in jail. She told me. She said, "I would have loved to have taken those thirty days in jail. I would have loved to prove the whole thing was a fraud, but I had to get back. There were people depending on me." She said, "Mom wasn't that well to be helping in, a, you know, every day in a beauty parlor." So she said, "I paid the fine instead of taking the thirty days, turned my car, and went back home." She she went to see the Baptist minister and his wife, Pearlene, who was very active in the church, and she spoke to them. Mrs. Oliver was aghast because Viola was bruised. Her arms and legs were quite bruised. The doctor himself advised her to see a lawyer, as did Reverend and Mrs. Oliver, who were in the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which had just begun about a year before this incident happened. She took it to a lower court and it was thrown out. But the association hired, the Viola hired a lawyer to take this injustice to the Supreme Court in Nova Scotia. And they lost because of a technicality. The lawyer had not placed his agenda early enough and she lost again. She was bitterly, bitterly disappointed, as was the association. The lawyer who Viola hired did not accept Wages, The money he got for that, he contributed back to the Association for Colored People. This was nine years before Rosa Parks, and I say that because the association wanted Viola to sort of take up the cause for her to go around and tell her story and to gather people around and know about what happened and fight for our race. Viola thought about it and she spoke to our dad. She 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 relied upon dad a lot for advice, and he said, "It's not what they want you to do or what I want you to do. It's what you want to do. What do you want to do?" And Viola said, "Well, I'm right in the midst of my second class in training for beauticians. I'd like to finish that. I'd like to go on with my work." Well, he said, "You've answered your own question." So she did not go like Rosa Parks. She did not go across the province of Nova Scotia or Canada telling her story. She went on with her work, graduated her second class. There were 15 there at that one, and they went on to the various communities to start the work that, that she had begun. I call it almost a tragedy, but I think she put it behind her. And a few years after that, in the 19, middle 1950s, she gave up her business. Her marriage, they were separated. She moved to New York. She moved to Montreal first, graduated from business college, and moved to New York. I don't know how far into the business that she attempted to get into, the business of being an agent for entertainers. I think she had one, one client, and she had trouble with her health but she did not see to it internal bleeding, gastroenteritis. It could have been tended to, and, but she was bleeding without knowing, getting weaker and tired, and she died in her apartment in February of 1965. I decided when my children had gone away, my husband suggested I go to university, and I did. I enrolled at the Cape Breton University. I enrolled in 2000 and got my B.A. in 2004. I took a history course, a history in cultural activities. One of the classes, it showed a picture and a sort of a movie of my sister. She was being lauded as an activist and the whole situation was there right there in the class i told my professor professor graham reynolds he was excited because i could now join him in telling students clubs and that i could go around and tell them the story of my sister i had a visit from a cbc reporter he came to tell me he was doing a story of viola now, this was in 2006 or 2007. He said he was on his way to Nebraska to speak with the mayor there, see if they could have a commemorative plaque or something in commemoration of Viola and her bravery. And he said, you know, you should really write the mayor and ask them to, to do something to remember in remembrance of Viola. I thought about it for a while. I said, look to myself, we're black. It happened many years ago. Who's gonna care? The mayor isn't gonna care. Nobody cares. And I waited months and months till I finally said, What can it hurt? I wrote the mayor in two thousand and nine. Mayor Barry McMillan. I got the nicest letter from him saying that they were going to take this subject up to the council and I thought I thought it was a nice letter, but I thought it was just some sort of a nice thing they say to an old woman. I don't know. So anyway, they did. From then on, 2009, right up to 2012, it has been nothing but excellence for my sister and her past. The town of New Glasgow all turned out and fetted my husband and I to a a Violet Desmond day. Everything, there was a commemorative plaque, a bench, the Afro Center, Heritage Center, and there was a portrait by a true artist, this happened to be the year they had the welcome home to the black citizens of uh, Nebraska. And it was just the right time. Everything seemed to be there at the right time. April 15, 2010, the province of Nova Scotia granted an official apology and free pardon to Viola. A royal prerogative of mercy, free pardon, is meant to right a wrong. In this case, to right the wrong, done to Mrs. Desmond. And it was offered posthumously. It has never been done before. And then I was invited to come to Halifax. The picture and the portrait of my sister was unveiled at the government house in 2010. Our lieutenant governor at the time that she was residing in the governor's was a black Nova Scotian, Lieutenant Governor May and Francis. I can't believe that this has been done. This is so, so wonderful. The university here designated a chair. Viola Desmond Chair in Social Justice, and Dr. Reynolds is the leader of that chair. And He has a scholarship dedicated to Viola's memory for students who want to make a difference, who are making a difference, students who maybe cannot afford to go to college. There's also a film mode put on by the Department of Education. The stamp was issued February 1st. 2012, the beautiful stamp. It has the pardon in, in minuscule letters by the picture of Viola on the stamp. It's a 59-cent stamp. In the background, faintly, the picture of the theater and the name of the picture that was playing. I have some copies here. I will keep them forever. There's been so much done in the past four years, five years, that I cannot believe that it snowballed to this extent. My words are, are really trifling when I say thank you. I thank the Department of Education. I thank Ross Landry, the Chief of Justice. I thank May Ann Francis. I thank Cape Breton University mostly. Recently, I've had the honor of having been given an honorary doctorate, but this is about Viola. And that little ninety ninety pounds woman, she didn't know what she had done, but I believe the foundation of what perhaps she has done and maybe I have done and my other sisters, the foundation of their education and their smarts and their gentility has all got to do with our parents and the way we were brought up and the fact that my mother stressed educating yourself, particularly for the blacks, for the natives, for anybody who, who has a disability, anybody who has a that somebody says to them, well, you can't come here, you can, you can go there, you can. I have great hope that this incident and the aftermath and incidents like this, the happy endings will inspire. And I'm so pleased that so many people had so much to do with it, that recognized the injustice, the wrong was right, and if I had just a small part, that, that's fine with me and fine with my family.
0: Born December 16, 1926, Wanda passed away at the Cape Breton Regional Hospital on Sunday, February 6, 2022. She was survived by husband Joe Robson, her four sons, one daughter, and nine grandchildren. The family asks that any donations in Wanda's memory be made to the Wanda Robson Scholarship at Cape Breton University. Please visit cbu.ca slash donors for more information. For AMI-audio, I'm Ryan Delahanty. Thank you for listening.